Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week, I spoke with Luck Lakshmanan, who worked for years at Google on ML and AI projects and products at a senior level. And he also brings years of experience working on meteorology and other scientific projects previously. Luck brings a ton of experience to the table, and it was interesting to hear his suggestions around when it is and isn't appropriate to bring the full set of MLOps tools to the table, for example. We also discussed the fundamentals of doing MLBAC projects, as well as the teams needed to make those projects succeed. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So um, my name is Lak Lakshmanan. I'm currently an operating executive at an investment firm uh, working on uh, data and AI and applying it to a, in, in a variety of uh, different companies and industries. I started out in academia, uh, basically building uh, what is now called machine learning, but was at the time called uh, pattern recognition, computer vision, data mining, etc. on uh, weather, uh, weather images. So basically, uh, uh, to find uh, phenomena like hail, tornadoes, flash flood, lightning. And a big part of our application was to basically uh, do uh, national weather service warnings. So basically, uh, people would use our algorithms to, to as, as decision aids when they issued uh, forecasts of severe weather. So if you, uh, again, I mean, you live in the, in the Netherlands, so it's probably not... Uh, as common, but if you lived in the uh, in a thunderstorm-prone area like the midwestern part of the United States uh, during spring, you basically have uh, you know a, quite a bit of, uh, of uh, public interest in knowing where a thunderstorm is and where it's going to hit because uh, the impact of a thunderstorm can be pretty significant. Other places where uh, our models got used to make decisions were in aviation, for example, to decide if an airspace would be open or if an airport uh, should be basically temporarily closed. So that's where I started. And uh, uh, you know, something that happened in the mid uh, 2010s is uh, machine learning started to become something that wasn't just about science, wasn't just about meteorology or astronomy but started to become much more applicable in industry. And uh, I, had, I was working with a company called Climate Corporation, which basically does precision agriculture. So helping farmers decide what to plant, uh, you know, when to plant, et cetera. And of course, uh, precision agriculture depends on three types of ML models. It depends on knowing the weather. It depends on knowing the genomics. Uh, like what kind of seed you're planting. And it depends on basically getting uh, an idea about soil and environment conditions. So I was uh, basically in charge of the data science team at Climate dealing with all things weather. So for example, we built um, a precision, uh, I mean, a precipitation estimation algorithm. So basically identify the amount of rainfall that fell on a farmer's field because that was a big input into the rest of the decision-making that a farmer would have to do. Um, that basically got me really interested in private industry. So having gone to climate, I did not go back to my academic job. Instead, I basically moved on to Google, where Google was just getting started with Google Cloud. And I had a wonderful time at Google, basically helping build out the professional services team, the learning, uh, learning and enablement uh, functions, uh, and also in building out the uh, solutions team, which is basically reusable data and AI models across across a variety of industries. So, you know, so, so I guess I've followed a typical a trend where uh, you know people who've been in this field a, a long time started out in research. And then basically, uh, you know, as the research became much more practical and much more democratized, basically moving into uh, more uh, you know, widespread uses of the technology in, in industry. Has the way you, you, you see yourself or saw yourself, has that changed along the way? Like, what did you, you consider yourself? Do you, do, you still consider, do you consider yourself a data scientist? Where is there software engineering in there somewhere? I mean, uh, 
Labels are hard, right? So I think I started out, if you'd asked me uh, 15 years ago, what was I? I would say I was a researcher. Right? So basically, I was doing research. I was writing papers. I was basically, but research with a very practical bent. Because uh, you know, where I worked, it was a federal research lab. Uh, but it was very closely tied to the National Weather Service, which is an operational agency, and to the FAA, the Federal Aviation Authority, which was another operational agency. So we always thought in terms of doing research that had really practical applications. So I was always involved in uh, you know, putting um, models in production. So we always had to basically run these things in real time. So that was the, the robustness, the reliability. It was always a concern. So I was a researcher, but I was also a re like an applied research, if you will, because I had to worry about engineering. If you'd asked me like five years ago, what was I? I was at Google at the time, and I would basically talk. You know, I say I'm almost like a, 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 a evangelist, if you will, right? So basically moving on from uh, core the work itself to basically evangelizing about the work, but also you know I was leading teams. I was basically working with customers on their problems. But I think my the amount of hands-on work had reduced reduced by then. Right. So I was basically my, the people on my team were the ones doing the hands-on work. I wasn't. But that also is quite common as you become more senior. You know, you basically get a broader scope of responsibility and while you know you 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 maintain your knowledge uh, and you you keep learning to make sure that you don't you don't ever become disconnected from what uh, and how people work uh, you know fundamentally you, your team cannot wait for you to basically do things they they would they would do much faster and now, what am I? I'm more of a coach, a mentor, more than anything else. Hmm. I've heard you say um, elsewhere uh, or use the phrase, it's AI until it works. And <laughs> when I heard you say this, I, I don't know, this, this something clicked for me. I was wondering maybe you can you can unpack that a little bit and what that okay. means in terms of abstraction. and, and Right. Because again, I've been through all of these cycles of technology where, you know, AI is basically something that is always aspirational. Right? Uh, so, you know, we would basically build a machine learning algorithm to say, uh, you know, do the probability of hail. And then people say, oh, this is just probability of hail. And what you're doing is you're looking at uh, like how much uh, like liquid is aloft and has iced up. Yeah, I totally understand. Once you basically said, but I mean, it was a neural network. It was basically using a bunch of features. It was quote unquote a black box, but we were able to explain it in terms of this is all it's doing is it's looking at the amount of ice aloft that's basically going to fall. Everybody's like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. It's no longer AI because I now understand it. It works. I can use it. I trust it. Yeah, no, AI is this like weird thing that is always coming along. Uh, an example I like to use is like put yourself back 15 years, right? and I tell you that one day you're going to have an, uh, a, a machine that you're going to go from place A to place B, and you say, "Hey, I want to go to place B," right? And it says, "Oh, okay. I notice that you're here, and there's three ways. That, you know, do you want to go by bicycle? Do you want to go by car? And you say, I want to go by bicycle, and it says, "Okay, here's a bicycle path." And in order to get to this bicycle path, you need to basically, here's how you go. It's going to take you 12 minutes. You have to cross this road, right? And it basically gives you step-by-step -step directions to get to this other place. You would have told me that that is AI, right? But today we say, well, that's Google Maps. That's not AI. Right? I mean, and I think fundamentally, uh, now once, once it becomes part of our lives and once we understand it, uh, and once we use it all the time, it stops being AI. I mean, if you, if, if you were to talk to somebody who uses Google Translate, I don't think they will call that AI. AI is still something something to do with robots that, you know, it's still aspirational. Google Translate works, and therefore it is not AI anymore. So that, you know, it's, it's this thing that it's about familiarity, I think. And AI somehow seems to be this thing that we assign to something that's operational. 
yeah, I mean, there's definitely a huge power in in explaining things in the right the right kind of abstraction. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm part of the the there's a new iteration of the the fast AI course going on at the moment, and yesterday we had a lecture. Uh, by Jeremy, Jeremy Howard, um, talking about stable diffusion and how this works. And, you know, from the outside, certainly for a lay person, this looks like or feels like magic, like turning a bunch of words into this photorealistic image and so on. But when you really translate how it's going on and, you know, either the words are translated into vectors and really it's just numbers all the way down somehow and you're transforming things along the way into different things and all the different pieces are just like, kind of clever tricks that people have slowly built up over the years, then, I mean, it removes the magic, but it's also, yeah. I, I don't know, there's some but power Alex, it removes the magic for you because for you, the magic was the technology. Uh, but put yourself in the shoes of an artist. Okay? Let's imagine that this stable diffusion gets built in into some kind of a marketing stack or content creation platform. So this person is not technical. They're, they're somebody who basically creates articles for a living. And you say, hey, you know, if you want an, if you want a cartoon to accompany your article, just go ahead and say like what you want. And the person would say, well, I, I, I want uh, basically a, a, a person standing with a tennis racket right uh, next to a net. And basically, what stable diffusion, if, if, if I were a product manager, I would basically say, okay, you want a person, let's draw a person, right? Basically, you would do, do that latent space exploration uh, very, uh, in, a, in a very appealing and very explainable way, where as they basically say a phrase, these things get drawn. And then after that, it, you know, once this thing becomes very familiar to someone's workflow, you ask them what it is, and their mental model is that behind the scenes, there is an extensive library of people and tennis rackets and nets that this thing is just searching and plopping, right? It's not going to be thought of as this, uh, you know, very smart way of embedding and memorizing the space and creating. It's not about tech, it's not about image generation anymore. Uh, the mental model that you would build for such a product would be that of a search. Right? And as long as you do it that way, it basically ties into something familiar and it will stop. It will cease to be AI because the it has been tied into something much more familiar and much less magical. So what I'm talking about is familiarity and explainability, expl explanation in the context of, uh, you know, of uh, idioms uh, that people use in their in their day to day lives. Now, and you see this over and over again, right? So when you look at the like in, like the idiom that's associated with uh, with with you know like you know a, a Google search text box, right? Uh, it the idiom is that okay, we're just basically looking for uh, these words that you're you're typing in the document that you find it. It's no longer that simple, right? You can basically search for home and you can find a bunch of pages that basically uh, refer to houses, but that there is a lot of magic going on, but the magic is kind of hidden away, you know, in, a, in an abstraction that feels very familiar. But somehow with the, the way you design the interface, I, I guess you, you need to, people need to know, I don't know, like what's possible? Because certainly with all of these, um, generative models, multimodal things. I mean, there's all sorts of things that one could imagine. And, right. you know, someone needs to somehow define the interface first. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the trick. And, and that's where basically people, uh, people get frustrated when the, uh, the technology doesn't work the way their mental model now does. They're, now, once you basically say this is what the mental model is, uh, then the technology doesn't work and you've got to basically also think in terms of how to translate errors into that mental model. So when someone asks for, for example, of stable diffusion to create something that it doesn't know, it needs to basically present it from not from the, like from this, from not saying, I did not have enough training data on these things, but instead, like, you know, I don't know what this is, right? Can you help me? And you, you see that happening with Alexa, you see that happening with Siri, 
where, where basically the answer is, I don't understand, can you tell me more? Not, right? This is outside the training data set. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, uh, again, this phrase, it's AI until it works, sort of applies to this world of, of MLOps that um, suddenly I'm now working in. You have this really great blog, um, uh, No, You Don't Need MLOps. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, is it MLOps until we don't properly engineer things? Or I don't know what the phrase is for MLOps, but <laughs> is there some parallel there? Uh, yeah, so, so the, the context of my article, No, You Don't Need MLOps, is that there are, there's like, you know, MLOps is about solving a problem, right? And the problem that it is trying to solve is that you cannot just develop an ML model and, and then you're done. Instead, you have, to, you have to maintain the model. Unlike most software, maintaining an ML model involves maintaining two things. Maintaining the software itself, but also basically keeping track of changes in the data and keeping track of changes in the environment. So that's what makes it complex. And ML ops is about basically managing changes in all three of these domains. Changes in software, changes in data, and changes in the environment. Changes in like you know what what we call model drift, data drift, and and like typical software changes. So basically, in order to do that, uh, you basically have to you know build in processes. Okay? Uh, the thing is that these processes, the there's two ways to solve them. One way to solve them is by by automating these things. Right? So you basically say, okay, I have to do all of these things. I have to manage the change in the software. I have to, I have to basically version control my data. I have to basically look for, their, for, for model drift. I have to do continuous evaluation. And when any of these things changes, in some cases, I need to do retraining. Some cases, I don't need to do retraining. So I need to formulate these conditions. I need to identify them. I need to, and that's the whole automation toolkit an experimentation toolkit that one set of vendors is developing. Okay. There's another way to solve this problem. And that way to solve this problem is, oh, could the software change? What if every time the software changes, anytime you retrain, the new software is automatically pulled in? What if whenever you, whenever you deploy a model, it automatically includes the changed pieces of software, right? So that's the second way to do it, right? And you basically start to see that a lot of ML frameworks are basically understanding these difficulties that are happening in the ML ops space and incorporating them into the software things themselves. Okay? So you can either do it with automation or you can basically rely on some of the, the simpler, easier answers that have been built in with this understanding that even though, even though it is not fully automated, you can, with some simple hacks, such as, I don't really need to worry about the environment changing if I'm going to retrain once a week always. Right? Worst thing, I'm going to be off by a week. Do I really need to build a whole bunch of automation to detect drift if I just basically put things on a schedule? Right? So what I'm what I'm proposing in this no, you don't need MLOps is that in a large number of cases, the simple, like you no know, routine things with a schedule will solve your problem. Right? You don't need the much more complex thing. Like for example, yeah, you can version control all your data sets, you can version control all of your models and all that. But if you're basically going to say, I'm going to train every week, and then now your date becomes your versions, right? Uh, you know that you're you're never you're never training on intermediate data. So therefore, all that you need to do is to basically have an ability to basically say, give me the data as of October 12th. 2022, and you get the data as of October 12, 2022. And that's something that's built into pretty much every data warehouse that's out there. And because that is, why do we need this whole separate ML architecture when your data processing architecture 
already supports it, right? Same thing with a lot of like, uh, you know, stream processing. Yes, you can basically go build your ML models to do online training, but you might as well just hook into your typical uh, stream processing architectures that allow you to create windows and define those windows with sessions, with, with you, know, you know, based on users, et cetera, and train on those windows and deploy on those windows. And now you're basically hooked into something that is robust and reliable in terms of a stream processing architecture. So what I'm saying when I say you don't need MLOps, it's not that the problem doesn't exist, but that the combination of doing things on a schedule, the combination of improvements that are happening in ML frameworks like PyTorch and Keras, et cetera, and the built-in abilities of many of the data processing platforms mean that much of this automation is not necessary. And if you can avoid automation, you basically get a much simpler system that you, know, you, can, you can get to production much faster. So that's basically the point. Is the is the existence of just this um, I don't know tr trend towards heavy automation um, like how much of it relates to um, either real scale or the future imagination of of scale I don't know there are these MLOps maturity models that Google and Microsoft have put out which are basically if you're not us like you're not you're not doing MLOps correctly or you're not doing ML correctly. Um, yeah, which certainly, if you're a small company. Now, having been on the other side, I hope the takeaway is not that if you're not us, you're not doing ML correctly. But the takeaway is that if you're not us, you don't need to be at this scale. And that's, I think, the same message that I'm saying, that you want to avoid over-engineering and automation in anticipation of future scale and future velocity, inevitably involves over-engineering and inevitably involves over-engineering with the wrong assumptions. So wait for that particular scale to catch up. Wait for the need to dynamically basically place your ads bids, right? Before you do it, if you're building a recommendation model and it's sufficient for you to basically build recommendations for all of your users once a day, you have basically avoided 90% of the stuff that's needed in MLOps automation because all that is about doing real-time recommendations. But if your product catalog doesn't change in real time, I mean, you're, the product catalog on a Google search or on a YouTube, right, changes in real time and they have to be really worried about catching trending topics. If you're an e-commerce site, I don't think the revenue boost that you're going to get by that is going to be worth the amount of money that you're going to spend on doing that automation, right? You, you may be better off building your recommendations once a day in a batch and loading it up and it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be a much simpler system. It's going to be so much more troubleshootable on things that are going wrong. And because you're only doing things once a day, you lose the need to basically you know, keep track of model versions and data versions and all that because everything is done on a schedule. It's only once a day. Right? So that's basically what I'm encouraging people to think about. I'm wondering how much of that um, relates to kind of, I don't know, lessons that you learned when you were earlier in your career working on definitely in, in an environment or in a world with fewer resources, but um, uh, yeah, where you, where you had to do all of this yourself. Right. So, so part of it is, of course, yeah. So now I had to build my own stream processing system. I had to build my own uh, ways to deploy uh, neural networks. I based now all of that stuff I had to do my, you know, by myself because these tools didn't didn't exist. And I know the amount of time that it took away from the real job that I wanted to do, which was to basically build weather models. And unfortunately, I still see that. Uh, when I work with customers, when I work with portfolio companies, et cetera, where people spend an unreasonable amount of time managing infrastructure. And part of the reason is who's doing the work, right? Uh, you know, lots of times you basically have, uh, you know, a central uh, team that has decided it's going to build an ML platform. 
please stop. Right? Go, go use Azure ML, go use Vertex AI, go use SageMaker. Uh, you know, there's like, like hundreds of engineers working with thousands of customers that are building these ML platforms. Right? Uh, at best, what, what you could do is to simplify uh, the, the platform for your set of use cases. Maybe you have sets of rules, et cetera. But my challenge is even that simplification that people do often just ties them up in the future. Right? You are better off right, uh, basically thinking about these platforms, whether it's MLflow on Databricks, whether it is SageMaker on AWS, whether it's Vertex AI on Google, as your platform and providing the flexibility to use the pieces of that platform uh, in the simplest possible way. Right? Uh, so if you're on Google, like you, sh you, you should basically have your data scientists able to use BigQuery, train their ML models in BigQuery and export to Vertex AI. It is the simplest, easiest, most robust way to do things. You should not basically constrain them. Uh, you know, and that's basically what, what the ML platforms built in many companies end up doing. They end up shooting themselves in the foot with uh, premature optimization. So when you know when people think about or answer this question, you know, how to do ML in production and when they talk about best practices, often this that conversation or that the answer to that ends up going in kind of a thousand different directions often gets gets quite specialized and what i seem to be hearing from you is not so much go down all of those avenues but rather try to reduce uh, and simplify things where possible um exactly yeah. simplify things uh with basically i mean ultimately ml is about training models and deploying them and accessing those models. If you can do those three things, the infrastructure these days will be, will be you, know, you will get the GPUs that you need to train, right? You, you will get very simple ways to automate the deploy. And the, when you deploy it, you will deploy into stateless services that will auto scale for you whenever you call them. Uh, just use those. Right, uh, and if uh, and then uh, provide people the flexibility to train the models in whatever framework they want to basically uh, you know, uh, deploy it as APIs, deploy it inside pipelines, deploy it for batch processing. But all of those, fortunately, are just patterns that are pretty reusable uh, and pretty robust, regardless of the uh, the environment that you choose to to, to build on. So it seems like you're also saying that the the abstractions that we have for solving problems with machine learning, um, they're pretty robust, stable. We can work with them right now. It's not going to change much. Yes, absolutely. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're doing PyTorch or using TensorFlow, you're doing Keras, you have really robust bulletproof abstractions and uh, the infrastructure that's been built for them to, to train and deploy and access these models is pretty robust as well. There is no reason to build one more level of scaffolding on top, especially if you can live with the simplicity, right? It's only when you need to do you know, real-time uh, real training online, uh, like federated learning, again, the number of people who need to do federated learning is vanishingly small, right? Federated learning is about basically preserving privacy of users, right? While allowing them to tune their models. The number of people who need that is really small and it's definitely, uh, you know, a, a really small fraction of the number of people who think they need it. So there's this um, series of books um that uh, or it's not a series it's just a, a bunch of books which all have the same title um some topic colon the hard parts that o'reilly has and i'm curious then like 
aside from what you were just talking about, like, are there other areas which you feel like are the hard parts of ML or the hard parts of solving problems with ML? The hard part of ML is where the human judgment comes in. Right? The hard part of ML is decide is collecting the data, deciding what parts of the of data are reliable, what parts of data are high quality. Right? Uh, where is the information? Where is the signal that you want to have the model train on? When does the uh, when does the old assumptions under the model no longer work? When, when are they no longer fit for purpose? This is all human judgment. This is not technology. Right? Te the technology is not the hard part of our ML. Are there other kind of non-technological things that come up? I mean, I definitely think about um, the kinds of teams that work on solving problems. Like, are there specific co configurations which make more sense than others? I feel like maybe that's something which is a bit more new or maybe there yeah, are. And, and, and I think a lot of companies get this right, right? So when you think about uh, who does ML, you basically have a few data roles. So let me kind of like define them. So because everyone defines them slightly differently. So you have data analysts or business analysts. So these are people who are domain experts. Primarily, they they know SQL, they know dashboards, Right? They work with data, but their fundamental expertise is that they totally understand the business. They understand which regions of the country that you're working in. They understand the important key performance indicators. They understand uh, like what the what the motivations of this of the sales ops team is, etc. Right. So that's your your data analyst, your business analyst. The next uh, role is your data engineer. So a data engineer is primarily a backend engineer who is very familiar with data tools. So about you now about basically building ingest ingest you now ingesting different data sets, reformatting them, putting them onto a common common schema, devising data models, right? Being able to basically uh, you know ensure that the data pipelines are up and running, etc. So that's your data engineer. So it's a backend engineer who's familiar with data warehouses, change data capture, data modeling, etc. The third role is a data scientist. So a data scientist tends to be very familiar with uh, basically answering questions that the business has in a much more automated, data-driven way. So where a data analyst would do things on a one-off basis, one-off reports, a data scientist is about basically doing these things much more routinely. Commonly, that is done through statistical models. It's done through machine learning. But you want your data scientist to basically have a, you know, a, a broader view of the problem space and to be able to choose the right uh, tool for the right problem. Right? So, And then you basically have a product manager. Right? A product manager is what I would think of as somebody who basically identifies high value problems within the enterprise that can be solved through data, prioritizes them, and coordinates the work of data analysts, data scientists, and data engineers. Right? So those are your four roles. And then you basically want to think in terms of any, any uh, domain or set of problems should have a data science team that consists of squads of these. So a product manager, two or three data scientists, three or four data engineers, and maybe like four or five uh, data analysts, right? So that becomes this, a squad of about 10 people uh, that is focused on, a, that's focused on solving problems at a business unit level. At, uh, no? and, uh, and then you basically repeat these squads for, for different business units. And the and basically because you don't want to have data engineers and data scientists just embedded in the business and unable to basically learn, you want them to basically uh, have you know, a, 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 you know, a group. And you basically often find that through like you know they basically are part of a center of excellence or something like that 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 gives them uh, like knowledge sharing and training, or maybe it's a central team with these people getting embedded into a business over periods of time, but you have to have 
some way of rotating uh, data scientists and data engineers across business units so that you basically have the ability to focus your work on the higher uh, value uh, opportunities in every business. I noticed you didn't say anything about ML engineers. Where's their role in all of this? Ah, that Good point. I'd not say much about ML engineers because I'm really thinking of them as part of the central team that is operationalizing things. So much more of the central uh, team, like the SRE team, that's where the ML engineering people sit because ultimately ML engineers are SREs who basically understand not just software, but also data and also machine learning models. For that, for that reason that we talked about with MLOps, you have changes that could happen in three different places and you want an ML engineer to be familiar with all three of those places. Mm -hmm. So I think in this, in this world, obviously, there are lots of new things every day, and it's important to keep learning and, and, and um, stay in contact with, with the current um, research and, and, and developments. But I'm curious, what are the things that you don't regret learning? I, kind of, what are the long-lasting fundamentals that have served you well over your career? Uh, so I have a different philosophy to learning than the one that you just said. You said like there's so many things that are happening and you want to keep up with it and you want to learn. Uh, I do keep up, right, in the very surface level, right, of, of what is happening. But much more fundamentally, I'm problem driven. If there is a problem that I want to solve, I will basically go back and read everything that has been done in that domain. What are the best practices? What have people been doing? What were some of the approaches that were tried a few years ago? What were some of the problems with them? Why did, it, why did this come along? In other words, I understand the evolution of the solutions in that space. And that is fundamentally how I learn. Right? I learn from, a, here's a problem I want to solve, and I will go back and read the literature. And I think that comes from my academic training. Uh, because again, like there's so many, so many things that are going on, and you tend to read the abstracts of the major journals in, in your field of study, but you don't actually like go and read the papers unless you're working on that problem, and then you basically do a like a literature search and you basically search backwards a little bit right to basically get get a sense of so that you're not basically coming up with a simplistic answer uh based on an incomplete understanding so you want to basically go back and uh really understand the problems i think where people people miss a lot is that they go and read the answers right which is what new new developments are but the answers outside of the context of the problems that are solving and the history in which these things have evolved are not very meaningful right? so so you want to read papers and new things from the sense of understanding the tools and and techniques but no just being aware if there's a new tool or technique that's basically come along right so you want to in ml you want to know what a transformer is you want to know what diffusion is because that's a that's a technique right but fundamentally right you want to basically say okay i'm going to now be working on uh let's say you basically are you know building something that needs to pick strawberries now you need to say, okay, what does it mean to basically pick strawberries? I need to basically think about grasp. I need to think about vision. I need to think about these things. Let me go look at what has been done in robotics when it comes to grasp, what has been done in terms of vision, and look at that breakdown of problems, and then you know which areas you want to go deep on. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that definitely feels like a kind of a long time long term aligned or long term first strategy maybe in the short term it wouldn't be the, the 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 best approach but if you see it over the long the long term you will accumulate enough problems that you gain more of that breadth exactly exactly and 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 yes and fundamentally right 
things are so specialized these days that uh, there is really no hope that you're going to basically learn the details of every single thing, right? Uh, if you think that you're gonna you're gonna be you know you're gonna learn the details of everything in 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 MHML and everything in text ML and everything in uh, you know in, in terms of basically finding uh, uh, you know like there's a whole bunch of work that goes on in terms of posts and post detection and all of that right it's it's gonna be tough it's gonna be tough to basically you know keep up and uh, you know there's just there's no point if you're not gonna apply it why why bother Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, do, do you keep up with the the kind of the the weather and climate field at all? Um, I'm interested in, yeah, your your sense yeah, of where, where uh, we are with them all on that. Yeah, I do, I do. I mean, I don't actively work in the field anymore, but uh, I I still have so many friends in, in that uh, in that domain, and uh, I I do keep up with it because it's something that I'm I'm very interested in. Uh, uh, but I don't actively do research uh, in, in weather and climate anymore. Are, do you feel like there are still, um, I don't know, big barriers or big things to be unlocked in, in that field? Are there interesting problems for people to work on? I mean, I know, oh, all I know is kind of the, the, yeah. the deep mind thing from, from maybe last year or a couple, couple of years ago. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's lots and lots and lots of interesting problems. Uh, and a few things, like to give you an example, right? Uh, climate models themselves, these are numerical models, they have become uh, much more, uh, much higher resolution, much, much better over time. And they, as they've improved, it has become possible to basically look at uh, studying the impact of, of, of climate changes, potential climate changes on different locations, on different human activities, etc. But to do that, you need to basically do what's called downscaling because the climate models themselves are at a, are at a pretty, pretty low resolution. So you need to basically, um, you know, and I'm using the word low resolution, but that's, I'm aware that anybody listening to this, the word resolution gets used differently in meteorology versus computer science. So I'm using it. So in the computer science sense of like, you have a low resolution, uh, you know, uh, climate models that need to basically get uh, what's called downscaled or basically up, uh, upsampled in, in CS terms. And uh, you want to basically upsample these things in order to basically find the actual impact, right? And that that is not always doable. And there's a lot of techniques from image generation and in-painting, et cetera, that become applicable when you basically start to say, if how do I take a low resolution climate model and upsample it uh, in a way that I can basically uh, tie it to the scale of human activity. So that's a, that's a fundamentally really, really, really interesting space. The second very interesting one is as things like self-driving cars, et cetera, come, become much more prevalent, uh, the, uh, it's necessary to basically, again, uh, most weather forecasts today are like you know, at three kilometer resolution. That is, it's not at the at the sense of a, of a road surface, but you need to basically figure out what's happening on the at the road level, which often means that you have to integrate what the car and its sensor is is reading, along with a sense of what's happening in the larger atmospheric sense. So that is yet another unsolved problem that is around this this you know this this idea of basically matching across matching across scales because there's one so this like the uh, the sensor scale that we're talking about on a car was fundamentally not not something that has ever been observed at this kind of frequency that you will start to get once you have sensors on on cars, on tires, on wipers, on on windshields that are also connected and used in a, you know, people have it on planes now, but they're not. You know, the number of planes is pretty limited, right? So you you have you have weather instruments on planes, and you get what are called pilot pilot reports, but that's really very minimal. Uh, the uh, you know getting these things from connected devices that are basically making their own decisions is something that that needs to get addressed 
and I guess eventually possibly networking them together to, to uh, build maybe, up. maybe networking them together and there's like privacy issues and so on there that yeah. uh, you know that's a, one of the reasons why it's like even though your phones have barometric uh, you know, pressure sensors uh just I like networking them together is is um, is dangerous because a barometric pressure also tells you uh, your elevation right mm -hmm. so you can basically you know, know which floor of a building you're in based on the barometric pressure. And uh, of course, that's a, that's a significant uh, reduction in privacy when, when that happens. So you want to be, you want to be careful about, uh, about, about, about the networking aspect of this. Okay. Uh, the, the other thing that, uh, you know, uh, gets, uh, that ML is starting to get used quite a bit in is improving the numerical models themselves. So again, uh, not to have ML models replace the numerical models, but to augment those numerical models. So you basically have what are called physics schemes in these numerical models that look at uh, like how things like Graupel, et cetera, affect uh, the future state. And those physics schemes are essentially you know, deterministic rules. And of course, we see rule-based systems getting replaced by ML all the time. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of promise in replacing some of those uh, physics schemes by ML. So we usually like to end and end these conversations with with a couple of uh, a couple of questions, which you can take in whatever direction you'd like. Um, the first of which uh, would be, what would be a quick win that someone can add to what they're doing to make their productionizing of models more robust? a quick win to make the productionization of models more robust. Logging. I'm surprised by how many, how many models go into production without the ability to log the inputs and to log the outputs of those models. You want to have the ability to basically sample and log or to basically have an ability to say, log if it meets these criteria and have that ability to basically, you know, so build logging into your models because, uh, you know, as you know, right, uh, as we, we, we know this from software, right? logging is the number one thing that's going to improve auditability. It's going to improve uh, the ability to basically play back something, it's going to be, it's going to improve the ability to troubleshoot. So please add logging to your models. The ML equivalent of a, a print statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what will be one part of putting models into production that you think um, hasn't been given enough attention by people building tools uh, in, in, in this space? Right. So what hasn't not been given enough attention uh, in terms of putting models into production, that's that's a good that's a that's a good question because again, uh, uh, most of these tool makers will you know periodically talk to customers and you, you know you 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 hope that they're basically addressing the big problem. So what I will I'll change the question slightly. I will say why where are the answers that are being built by the tool makers inadequate or insufficient? And I think the one place that I see a big problem is with experimentation. So you basically have the ability to run and rerun models and you basically have these experiment numbers and you basically know uh, like how it ran, but all these experiments are at the level of a complete workflow. But again, like what, what would be awesome would be the ability to essentially run parts of a workflow uh, to be able to basically track artifacts through that part of the workflow. Right? Experimentation today seems to be I have a working model and I'm going to try out different, uh, different ways of doing it. But what if you don't have a working model? Right? And what if you experiment is about basically figuring out why your model isn't working the way it is. That, that exploring why is something that 
our experimentation platforms do not do well at all. They're almost about exploring the space of potential solutions. And uh, unfortunately, uh, data scientists and ML engineers now have got to this point of the way I'm going to explore, like or where I'm going to develop is I'm going to run the same thing in multiple times. But that is that is like hit and miss, right? You want to basically build an understanding and the only way to build understanding is to have the ability to run pieces of your pipeline uh, with, with deterministic inputs deter and then basically explore the output. That part doesn't seem to exist in any of the experimental frameworks I'm seeing. So kind of a, I don't know, smart auto ML with experiment tracking combination or? Not really smart. I'm not talking about auto ML. Like, let's say, for example, as part of your pipeline, uh, you have uh, a preprocessor, right? Uh, and a preprocessor does mix up, okay? And I would love to be able to basically, as part of my experimentation, say, okay, here's three images. I want to mix them up. I want to look at the output. Don't run any of the rest of my pipeline. I just want you to show me the mix up so that I can see if mix up is basically introducing artifacts. There is just none of the tools lets me do that today, right? If I have if I have to do that, I have to take the code, I have to put it outside, I have to make a completely new pipeline out of it, and I have to basically feed it images and get it out. That is not how we develop and debug software. I mean, do you do you go into your into your IDE and you do you do you do you take a function and do you make a new program out of it in order to debug it? No, right? You're able to basically now pass in a deterministic input into this section of your code, get the output, and you're able to troubleshoot that section of the code. Mm -hmm. You just don't have a way to troubleshoot one one component or one part of a component. Better windows into, into, into the individual exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time and your insights. Um, it was very, very interesting learning from you. Um, I definitely would recommend people uh, check out the things that you've written, your books. Um, uh, yeah, thank you again. <laughs> thank you very much, Alex. It was, this was fun. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people. And of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast at zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time.